Today on the Big Football Dive In, we're joined by ESPN, BT Sport and NBC commentator Derek Ray. He's going to be chatting to us about his early footballing memories, his career as a sports broadcaster and how he became the voice of FIFA 19. Shall we? Very pleased to be joined by Derek Ray, live from uh, his home in America. Um, Derek, thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Nice to be on with you guys. So I first wanted to start just by talking a little bit about your upbringing in, uh, we believe it's Scotland in Aberdeen. Is that right? Yes, um, I was born in Aberdeen in the city itself and uh, back in 1967, a long time ago. And football was always very much front and centre in my life. And in tandem with that, the local team, Aberdeen, who nowadays are, you would say, the third force in Scottish football, probably. But back then were the first force. In fact, um, when I was growing up, I was lucky enough to, to watch a team that competed at the very highest level in Europe, winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 1983. And our manager was a fellow called Alex Ferguson. I've always wondered what happened to him. <laughs> Have you ever met Alex Ferguson? I have, actually, and, and I've had the hairdryer treatment from him, too. It was one of my first experiences as a young commentator in the early 1980s uh, doing hospital radio, and I happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I was told in no uncertain terms about that by, by Mr. Ferguson. But I, I got to know him a little bit better after that and saw his, his more charming side as well. Yeah, so we were reading that when you were about 19 years old, you kind of got your first big break and you started um, doing some commentary work and broadcasting with the BBC. And it's a very different kind of uh, way of getting into the sport now uh, compared to today. Um, just give us a bit of insight into what it was like kind of getting into the industry. You're absolutely right. It, it was a different era. And back then, there weren't many young people who really aspired to get into TV or radio or newspaper journalism, probably newspaper journalism was more common, but you didn't really have colleges or universities or specialist degrees in, in, in something like this. It was um, the sort of profession that you almost fell into and, and you'd have to be very lucky to, to ever fall into it. There just weren't many jobs in, in that industry at all. Um, so I was a, a German student, a very keen German student, but always had at the back of my mind that what I really you know, wanted to do, but it would probably never come my way, was be a broadcaster. And so I started at a very young age making tapes of myself um, commentating. I used to go to the local games at Aberdeen Football Club, the reserve games predominantly, and just talk to myself into an old-fashioned tape recorder. Now, you might think, well, that, that's just, that's really sort of nerdy, isn't it? But I've always said, um, and, and I say this to young to students and, and people who want to get into, into broadcasting nowadays, you've got to make yourself different. You've got to differentiate yourself from everyone else. And if that means doing something and putting yourself out there that, that maybe seems unusual, then then do it. So that was my way of doing it. And, and I you know, commentated that way for, for a few years. And then from there, went to hospital radio and was able to turn that into more practical experience. And so when I was 19, I was able to, to put these tapes the way of BBC in, in Scotland and Glasgow. And, and that's what launched my career. So I was lucky, but at the same time, I always say that uh, I did put a tremendous amount of work into it. And, and it was definitely what I wanted to do. Well, when was the first time you thought, actually, this could be a full-time job for me? This could be a career I could be set for life here? 
Um, not sure about set for life, but but I think probably when the BBC first of all came calling and said um, we really like what you do and we'd like you to start working for us. Now that was on a sort of a part-time freelance basis while I was still a student. But I think at that point, that was the first time I really genuinely thought, okay, um, maybe this is something that I could end up doing. Um, because previously I, I thought. Um, it's unlikely it could be full time. And I say that because the person who was my great hero and who was actually very helpful in terms of encouraging me as a young broadcaster, David Francie, who was the Scottish football voice of that era with, with BBC Scotland, uh, he he was never full time. He, he had another job actually with the, um, the gas board in Scotland as a public relations manager and his commentating was a, a, a not, not going to say a hobby but it was a part-time activity around his professional commitments so I, I always thought well what I'll probably end up doing is is something with languages you know either a teacher or a translator or interpreter something like that. that that's a more realistic goal I mean difficult thing to get into as well certainly the translating and, and um, interpreting for an international organization but uh, I thought that that could work but um once the BBC took an interest and once I started working there, I probably thought to myself, OK, I, I could end up here for a long time. Now, as it has turned out, I've, I've actually worked for a number of different broadcasters throughout my, my career. I've been lucky enough to to have broadcasters interested in my work. And, and now I'm 100 percent freelance, which is by choice. And it gives me the flexibility to work for whomever I want. Uh, assuming that they're interested in what I have to offer. So, so for me at this point now in, in my 50s, this is, I think, you know, the ultimate, uh, having gone from being exclusive to one broadcaster uh, to, to now working for a good number of them. So you've always had this kind of outward perspective on, um, on broadcasting. And um, tell us a bit more about kind of the move to the United States and how this came about, because we understand you know, kind of around the 1994 World Cup, it, it came about. Yes, that's right. It was the early 90s and I'd been at the BBC for five years and I went to the World Cup in Italy in 1990 as one of the BBC radio commentators. And at that point, I bumped into a few people from the United States who were over in Italy preparing for hosting the 1994 tournament. These were people who worked for the organising committee and they were just keeping their eyes and ears open because it was all very new as far as, as far as they were concerned. And I had at the back of my mind at that point that America was something that really interested me. I'd started going there a couple of years before that for the first time and really found it this just an amazing country, uh, you know, full of opportunities, as I said, in my mind anyway, but just, you know, a different sort of place and, and what an adventure that would be. And I was young, I was single, and I thought, you know, 1994, that would be a great thing to have an involvement with just because it is so new. It is a country that probably needs a little bit of help uh, because, you know, while it, it does actually have its own rich football history, uh, it wasn't quite on the international football map then the way it is now. So I uh, made these contacts. And then after five years at the BBC, just decided, and this was not the uh, the sort of the path that most people would advise that you take. I just decided that I was going to move to the States and I was going to try and do a little, little bit of freelance work and um, find out what it was like to, to live in the US. And uh, I landed in Boston, which was the city I'd got to know best of all. And I actually spent a few months enrolling, or I enrolled rather, at a, a local college in Boston 
which specialise in broadcasting. And people said, well, you know, you're far too qualified to be doing that kind of thing. But, but to be honest, it actually gave me a bit of perspective in terms of just finding out how things work in American broadcasting, because it's a very different thing. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that because you've done something in UK broadcasting, you can immediately make the switch to how they do it in the US. So um, those few months really bought me a bit of time, um, allowed me to work out what it is I wanted to do in the States and make a few more contacts. And I was also lucky at that point that when I finished that college course, uh, I went to see an immigration lawyer because I was fairly sure at that point I wanted to, to stay on a, on a more permanent basis in the U.S. And because of an award I'd won in the U.K., the, the Sony uh, U.K. Broadcaster, Sports Broadcaster of the Year Award in 1988, because of that award, I was able to translate that into a green card, which um, uh, then, as now, quite a valuable thing, quite a difficult thing to get. So that meant I could then stay on my own terms. I wasn't um, you know, at the mercy of, of any one employer and uh, managed to, through the contacts I'd made, managed to get myself a job with the, the World Cup Organising Committee as one of the press officers, one of the, the media spokesmen and, and organisers. And that was under a fellow by the name of Jim Trecker, who uh, I regard as a real mentor, somebody who, who knows his business extremely well. And again, you know, I keep coming back to that word learning learning experience. So I learned so much during that um, you know, couple of years about how things happen in the USA, about working with the US media, about being a press officer, which I'd never uh, been before. I've always been a broadcaster before that. So those two years when I was out of broadcasting doing that, very fond memories. And of course, we had the World Cup in 1994, which uh, I'm fortunately able to say I was a very small part of. That growth from of American football from the sort of the NASL days of, of Pelé and George Best to then moving into the 1994 World Cup to now with the MLS going from strength to strength. You've obviously witnessed that growth. It must have been quite astounding the difference between maybe 1994 and then nowadays. Oh, absolutely. It's a different world when it comes to the sport. And I always make that point, you know, a lot of people get quite impatient in the USA. They say, oh, it should be moving more quickly and this should be happening and that should be happening. But I remember the period um, right after the World Cup 1994 uh, or before it too, when there really wasn't club football as we know it. So MLS came along in 96. And again, I had an involvement in that as one of the commentators uh, doing games for the New England Revolution on television locally and also a few national games for ESPN. Um, but, uh, you know, since then, everything has just moved at a rapid pace. And I, I mentioned, too, um, when we discussed this, um, the, the, the club games from other countries, you know, from, from England, for example, we didn't really get English football except if you happen to be in the right pub and you happen to have the right closed circuit um, service. But now, thanks to what NBC have done in, in the USA, it is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and a lot of people have uh, jumped on that bandwagon and are, are watching it week in, week out. It's part of their routine, you know, early in the morning in the States as opposed to afternoon in England. Um, I used to watch, when I first landed in Boston, um, it was sort of a black hole, really, that the idea of watching English football. You could only do it, as I said, in, in certain Irish bars, mostly. But I lived in the Italian section in Boston, so I became a Serie A watcher, an avid Serie A watcher, for about uh, three years during that period. That was what you got. And I used to sit there, mostly with other immigrants, with other people from other countries uh, who had arrived in Boston and wanted their fix of the sport they'd grown up with. So Serie A is what I watched at that time. But now you can watch anything. In fact, you can actually arguably watch more 
international football um, every weekend here in the US than you can in the UK. You know, I think that's that's a fact because you get all the the three o'clock kickoffs as they are in, in the UK. You can watch them live here as well. And um, you know, MLS is is growing steadily. I think, um, and you know, a lot of people would like it to grow more quickly. There's always the debate about how it should do that. But the fact is, it's given. American players a platform that they didn't have in a previous generation, and I think some of the younger people, uh, you know, who, who would like it to to have a different tra- trajectory, maybe just need to to have that perspective that there was a time when um, there wasn't um, American club football in this form at all. And Derek, you've obviously commentated on um, a lot of different European leagues and things like that, um, Bundesliga, Serie A and Eredivisie. Um, when you're commentating on MLS games, you have to kind of cater to a different audience in your style. Not so much nowadays. I think back in the 90s, and I freely admit this is maybe where um, you know things didn't go quite so well for me. I, I was, and I come back to that word, impatient. I was very impatient for MLS in the early days, and there were a few things I didn't like about it in the early days. One of them was this bizarre shootout that was used to, um, to decide drawn matches. They didn't like the idea of drawn matches, so you'd have this 35-yard shootout at the end of the game, which I just thought was a bit of a farce, a real lottery. And there was one particular game in Miami featuring the New England Revolution that saw um, a goalkeeper get sent off in the shootout. Nobody really had seen this before. A goalkeeper got sent sent off because he came out of his area and, and brought a player down. And then uh, Joe Max Moore, who did actually play in English football for a while, um, had to go in goal and put on these gloves that were about 10 sizes too big for him because there was no provision. Nobody had thought of this. Um, this before uh, b- because the substitutions had all been used. But I mean, that, that's an example of, of the early days of MLS when when it, it didn't quite know what it was. And I think it was a bit afraid to be, uh, you know, a, a league that was similar to other leagues around the world. Nowadays, it, it has much more confidence. And I think um, people who watch it, and I talk to people in the UK who watch it all the time, I think find that it it fits in much better with with world football. So um, you know, in the early days for me that was the big challenge. I would you know not be a critic. I was a commentator, but if something bad happened, I would I would point out that it was bad, and that wasn't always welcome. Uh, you know, criticism of refereeing decisions. Again, you don't want to belabor that as a commentator, but if something's wrong, it's incumbent upon you to say it. And maybe with my background, because I came from a European background, where that's what you do as a commentator, that didn't fit quite so well in the early days when they really did want a message of of everything being you know hunky dory. Whereas I think now a lot more honesty, and, and that's all you, you, you're aspiring to really as a commentator uh, f- from an editorial point of view is honesty. Um, I think honesty is is much more welcome. Do you think actually with the the way the MLS is set up that maybe there's lessons for the European leagues that can be learned from some of their practices? Because obviously the MLS is extremely competitive. You know, I think it's something like 10 or 11 winners in in, uh, however many years it's been running, Um, certainly more than the Premier League. Do you think maybe you could look at things like salary cap designated players um, and the way that MLS operates that maybe could be used for the European leagues to sort of balance that competitive aspect? Or do you think that's a hindrance to MLS moving forward? No, I, I don't think that the salary cap that you mentioned is a hindrance. I think that there's a lot of good in that. And I think the whole concept of, of parity is, is something that 
fans in other countries would love. I mean, you think about, uh, you know, one team leagues or, you know, two team leagues and even the way the Premier League is going. I mean, we're in danger. You know, we, we crossed that Rubicon a number of years ago. Uh, we're in danger of, of having only a certain number of teams who really can win the league. I know Leicester did it recently, but, you know, that was a bit of an aberration when you, you consider the, the history of the Premier League in the last few years. So the fact that you've had multiple winners in MLS, you genuinely don't know who is going to win at the start of the season. All these things are good. Um, what's not so good from my point of view is the fact that it's a closed league, that um, there is no promotion and relegation, and there doesn't appear to be an appetite on the part of the owners of the MLS teams to introduce that. To me, that's something from the European side that would enhance MLS is that, you know, even if initially it was a sort of a closed relegation situation where you had maybe an MLS one and then MLS two and teams could go back and forth between those two um, uh, systems or, or leagues within one system. I think that would would be a positive. But um, no, I, I do think that, that we, we can certainly learn uh, things from MLS and the fact that there's a solidarity within the league to prosper. Um, I think the Premier League does that pretty well, too. I think the Bundesliga is very good in that regard also. Um, but I think we're always learning from each other. And, uh, you know, MLS has come a, an awful long way. I, I do think we have to give it credit. Uh, it's certainly not perfect, and there's certainly improvements that can be made. I mean, I think probably that on balance there are too many teams that go to the playoffs in MLS, and I think that can turn some people off. But uh, it, it's a matter of, of studying other things, and I think that's what, what makes our sport so great, that it is truly a world sport, and we pick up things from from other countries. I mean, I, I always you know, laugh at... Um, you know, nowadays that the referee with a spray can, we now just take that for granted as, as being something that, that happens. But I remember there was a big hoo-ha about that when it was introduced and it was in Brazil where it was first proposed. And people said, that's just a joke. How ridiculous is that? A referee with a spray can spraying a white light, you know, and all of a sudden, a few years later, ah, that's actually quite a good idea. So I, I think we can, we can um, uh, you know, mop up things from, from other countries and long may that continue. Well, going into um, VAR then, Derek, you talk about refereeing. From your point of view as a commentator, when you're when you're when you're live and, and you're under pressure to maybe make a judgment and, and and inform the audience, how where do you stand on VAR? Do you think it's going to be a good long-term goal, or for you as a commentator, it's quite confusing at the moment? Um, I like it. I, I have to say, uh, preface my remarks by saying I am a fan. I, I wouldn't have been maybe 10, 15 years ago if we'd been having this conversation. If you were to dig into the, the archives, you you'd probably find me um, saying the opposite, because I used to feel um, that the game should be the same in every country under uh, all circumstances. That, in other words, a game on the uh, you know, in the park in Bradford should be the same as as a final at Wembley. That you know, the same laws apply. And but but then I sort of began to watch other sports and see how they did it. And uh, especially rugby, I think rugby has used this quite intelligently in recent years. This sort of technology, um, the American sports too, you could argue. But I think that um, what really swayed me was. Um, when I was broadcasting games in Scotland about a decade ago uh, and people were you know, sitting on their phones during the matches and had apps and, and things like that when, when these were coming in uh, and, and people saying, you know, oh, I, I, I watched that incident on my phone, you know, while they were inside the stadium and uh, I clearly saw what happened. I'm thinking, well, if people can do that on their phones, why is the poor referee not given that? that same option you know why is the ref why does is the one man who actually has to make a decision why does he have a poorer view of it uh poorer context than the guy who's inside the stadium with his mates uh 
So um, I think the application of it is always a discussion and an ongoing discussion. But I've had the benefit of seeing it up close in Germany because I work there quite a lot still. And Germany did it very sensibly. They brought it in for a year offline, so to speak. So in other words, referees would congregate in Cologne, where their main refereeing center is on match days, and they would you know, simulate situations with VAR to give them practice. And you know, it's not perfect. We've had it now for a couple of years in Germany. A lot of fans absolutely hate it. But you know, I think on balance, we want to get these things right. And yeah, it doesn't get everything 100% right, but it certainly corrects you know, far more errors than anything else I've ever seen. And yeah, there is the old, there is the odd holdup while these decisions are clarified. But, um, you know, it's still a work in progress. And I think England, to be fair, this is just my opinion, has not handled it as well as other countries. I think they've been late to the party on it for once. And I don't know that it's been implemented in quite the most rigorous way in England, you know, um, uh, only in cup competitions and not in every game. And, you know, as I say, somewhere like Germany and, and other countries, MLS is another example, where they really took it on board and decided they would have it for every game. And so I think now there's there's a much more thorough understanding of it. So it will take time in England, but I, I would predict that, again, if we were to flash into the future and say five or six years from now, having this conversation, I think it would be like watching football in the old days, uh, you know, the 1980s, before the back pass rule of goalkeepers picking up the uh, the back pass and things like that, it'll just um, it'll seem you know out of date, and we'll we'll say to ourselves, how did we ever get by without without video evidence? Just my opinion, not everybody's, but that's how I see it. Well, I'm a Cardiff City fan, so I definitely agree with you. I wish it was in place on Sunday, really, when I was in the stands bemoaning the referee for that equaliser, but I won't get into that now. I'll get too angry. Um, in terms of the future of sports broadcasting as a whole, then, where do you sort of see the the, the market going? And, and what are the broadcasters, ESPN and um, NBC Soccer, what are they doing that they see the future? Is it VR? Is it, um, you know, streaming across all different platforms? I think that's a very good question. I, I mean, I, I have always, you know, felt, uh, well, always is the wrong word. I felt for, for some time that the future is probably watching games on a device of some sort. Uh, I thought this before there was even such a thing as an iPad. I'm talking to you from an iPad right now. And I remember having a conversation with, with somebody who, who knows a thing or two about the industry saying, yeah, it'll all be on your computer. Um, but now, of course, it's phones and iPads and who knows what the devices that we're talking about will be in 10 years' time. So I think that that is how it's going much more. I think the younger generation has been cord cutting a lot more and consumes in a different way in comparison with, say, my generation or, or people you know older than, than, than me. Um, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that all comes together. I think you're going to have new players on the market. I think there are already new players in the market, both in the US and the UK and other places. And a lot of these new players are um, in the streaming game. You know, so I, I think that is is certainly going to take over to a large extent. There'll still be a demand for people to watch on their old-fashioned televisions, but I think we just have to be open to to how things are done. And um, one thing about the TV industry or the broadcasting industry, whatever you want to call it, is that it is always changing and it will continue to change. Yeah, and give us an insight into kind of how much research you do before a game, because I think football fans, pure football fans, really want a great product when they're watching. 
and they really want that insight. Um, so how much research goes into um, the games and, and, how, and how many little stats do you have to look at for any kind of situation that arises in a game? Yeah, I always like this question because I think it would surprise a lot of people just how much work goes into a match for a commentator. And it really depends, I think, upon how much time you have in comparison with the other assignments. Now, in the old days, when I say in the old days, when I was working for BT Sport in the UK, uh, in those days, I might do about 120 games a year. So uh, it was just a constant case of preparing, preparing, commentating, preparing, preparing, commentating. Now I've sort of cut that back to, you know, around between 60 and 80 games uh, at a maximum. So it gives me a little bit more time. But it is always amazing how many people think you sort of just turn up and start talking. You know, they think you turn up and start talking and maybe somebody gives you a, a note here on there to help you along your way. But uh, the truth of the matter is every commentator prepares in his or her own way. And uh, it can take a, a lot of time. It can be laborious and it's very solitary. But that's part of the fun of it. It's just sort of like constantly digging. You're digging for, for information almost every day. And what I do is, I mean, for example, uh, I'm going to be doing the, the Borussia Dortmund-Schalke game, the, the biggest uh, derby in Germany, uh, the Revier Derby, as it's known, at the end of April. So we're a few weeks away from that now. Probably in the next day or two, I'll start scribbling. And all I do is I take a, an old-fashioned A4 bit of paper. I do everything in an analog fashion, being of this generation. The younger commentators do everything you know, on computers, but I like to, to, to write it the old-fashioned way. And what I do is I just divide the paper in half, uh, and on the left-hand side will be Dortmund, and they'll be in black, and on the right-hand side will be Schalke, and they'll be in blue. And uh, what I do is I have half of the paper that basically does player-by-player -player info, and then the bottom half is team info. And I have the smallest handwriting you've ever seen. Um, I've sometimes put that online before, and it has, uh, it has got some interesting reactions. I have tiny writing, and that's just my way of doing it. And it all started when I worked in Aberdeen, very cramped gantry, no elbow room whatsoever. So you needed to get everything on one sheet of paper. And that's just still how I work today. Wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but it, it, it works for me. So what you're really doing is you're, you're trying to, it's almost like you're, you're sort of studying for an exam and every game is an exam of sorts. And so I just start scribbling. So I'll, I'll have a look at Dortmund, things I, I didn't know, sometimes things I already know just to reinforce them in the, the memory and, and just write away. So eventually on match day, this, this sheet is complete. And, uh, you know, when people look at it, I remember um, I was on a train, actually, when I was working in the UK, a train going from, I think, from Dundee to Glasgow. And I was working on one of these sheets and an elderly woman um, stopped by just walking from the, um, the, the restaurant car to where I was sitting. And she said, oh, my, she said, what on earth is that? She goes, that to me is the work of the insane. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said to her, I said, yeah, it's hard for me to disagree, um, but but that's how I do it. And uh, I keep all these sheets for reference. That's the great thing. I have them all from every game that I've ever done. And so if I have to do a team that I haven't done for quite some time, I just you know go into the vault and find what I wrote about them maybe six or seven years prior to that. And some of the same information, especially the historical facts about a particular club, uh, will still be there. For example, I'm doing the Women's World Cup for Fox this summer, and I broadcast uh, two previous Women's World Cups, 1999 and 2003, and I still have my notes from, from those tournaments. So um, the first game I'm doing will be Norway at the, the Women's World Cup this year. So I'll, I'll dig out my Norway facts from those previous World Cups and 
you know, not too much of it will be relevant now, but there'll still be something that will uh, will trigger something um, that can hopefully come out on the air. How far does your planning go in, in terms of what you actually say on the day? Because obviously, if you think back at the sort of legendary commentary moments, like uh, they think it's all over, it is now. Obviously, that was a, a spur of the moment comment. But do you ever get conscious that maybe your commentary might be associated with an iconic sporting moment that needs to be befitting so much so that you maybe pre-write a line or have a, a thought about what you're going to say? For instance, if England were in a World Cup final like they could have been this summer, was, was there some thinking into, oh, if they win, I'm going to say this? I think you always have to be a bit careful when you do that because, um, you know, if you're just delivering a line, it's probably not going to actually sum up the emotion of that particular moment. Um, so I think what you can do is you can kind of have an idea in your head what the theme is. And that's ten- that tends to be sort of where I go rather than just writing out a straight line and saying, yeah, I'll use that or I'll use this next one. Um, I, I think you just have to kind of think almost laterally about the game. And and, and that usually brings the best out of you as a commentator. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in Russia, in Moscow, when England finally ended the, the, the jinx against uh, Colombia in terms of penalty shootouts. And um, I didn't write a line for that, but... Luckily, what I said, I, I, I think <laughs> what I said was fitting. And a few people have said, yeah, that really did um, tie in with, with the emotion of, of that particular moment. Because, I mean, you know, we've all uh, we've all seen England over the years really mess up penalty shootouts. But this was the time Eric Dyer was the player uh, when it all went right. So um, so I think that, yeah, I, I think you have to have an idea what it is you want to say. But I think that it's dangerous to to make the commentary um, a, rehe- a pre-rehearsed drama. Um, you know, I, I, I'll give you a, a, an example of a line that I'm really proud of is there was a, an Edinburgh derby I did in Scotland a few years ago between Hearts and Hibs, two great rivals in, in the Scottish capital. And Hearts um, were on the verge of being relegated. They were in serious financial trouble. And um, what they didn't want to do was be rele- they knew they were going to be relegated. They didn't want to be relegated by their city rivals. Imagine that. I mean, whether it's, you know, Aston Villa, Birmingham, whether it's uh, Spurs, Arsenal, not that that would likely happen. But, you know, two city rivals, just imagine how intense that could be. So, um, you know, the, I was working with Gary McAllister on that game and I was talking to Gary at, at halftime and, and uh, you know, Hearts were in the lead. And, you know, I just said to him at halftime, I said, yeah, I mean, this is just real defiance, isn't it, from a team that, that's sort of been on its knees and everything. And I'm thinking, all right, OK, defiance. And then um, for some reason, I just kind of had an image at halftime about, you know, what happens if Hearts go on and, and, and do this, you know, sort of pump this up a little bit. But didn't have a, an exact um, line in my mind. But then they scored a second goal with about three minutes left. And then I got this magnificent shot from the match director, Grant Phillips, of um, of Gary Locke, the Hearts manager, just going absolutely nuts. And I don't know where it came from, but I, I you know, sort of belted out. I said, not on this patch of Edinburgh land, not in a derby, no relegation today. And, you know, I hadn't pre-rehearsed it. Um, and I'm lucky that a lot of Hearts fans still contact me and say, uh, See, that, that's a line that really uh, gave me goosebumps. So I think if you can do that, you, you sort of dig into your soul a little bit. And, and it has to be something that you would say naturally. It has to be part of your personality. It can't be something that's, that's fake and is not intrinsic to you. That's how I would say it. 
Yeah, I think that's what we like with commentary is kind of hearing those things come from the heart and you can tell that the commentator's really in the moment of the game as well and they're really feeling it as much as we are. Um, but talking about kind of pre-rehearsing, me and Callum are, are a big FIFA fans, so we hear you and Lee Dixon all yes. the time playing in the Champions League. Yeah. After how was how was that go? How did that go in terms of filming into um, and and delivering these lines? You've got to say a lot of players' names and things like that and pronunciations. Tell us a bit about that because that's a that's a new kind of venture for you. It is, and I have to say, this has been one of the most exciting projects I've ever worked on as a broadcaster. And it came out of the blue uh, just ooh, eighteen months or so ago. Uh, I was not long back here in the US and got a call. Um, telling me that I was very much of interest to EA Sports. And um, it sort of just kicked on from there. And, yeah, Lee and I have been working together on it, on FIFA 19. And, yeah, the whole process is fascinating. And what's great about that is um, the guys at EA Sports really want us to be ourselves. It's just what we said earlier. You know, they haven't hired us to to be facsimiles of, of, of ourselves, that they want the real thing. So... The great thing with that is that, and people probably don't know this, uh, is that we have scope to, to sort of say whatever we want to say or what we organically would say, um, but multiple times over. So there's no script as such. There's no kind of, okay, say this word for word for word, but it's all down to scenarios. So, you know, the producer uh, might say to us, okay, we have a situation here where it's a corner kick and a big defender has come up from the back. And he's headed it just narrowly over the top. You know, give us that sort of 10 different ways, as you might say it in, in normal commentary. And it kind of is quite a, a sort of a mental agility challenge to, to do that sort of back to back. And also a vocal challenge, because, of course, you're talking nonstop for several hours. We, uh, we find ourselves in a studio doing that for, for many hours at a time. But it's really great fun. And um, it, it's uncanny to, to hear the, the finished product and, and how lifelike it can be and also visually of course i mean the whole thing really does come to life but um but that has been a lot of fun and uh yeah it, it's um i wish everybody could see you know how we do it and, and it's fun especially when, when lee and i are in there together uh because uh, you know occasionally things go wrong when you're talking unscripted for six hours things go wrong or you know they come out the, the wrong way and we have a good old laugh about it now, Derek, we'd like to finish just with a couple of quick-fire questions as sort of some of your sure. favourite moments. So we'll start with favourite stadium experience, so maybe something that you thought was really authentic and your sort of maybe your earliest football memory. Ooh, um, well, earliest, let's think now, earliest football memory um, would really be the 1974 World Cup on television uh, and that final between West Germany and the Netherlands, although I watched all the games leading up to that, that one really stands out. And it was actually the first game I ever saw, and you guys are going to think he's really old, first game I ever saw on colour television, 1974, the final between West Germany and the Netherlands. I'd watched all the other games in black and white. So that really sort of jumped out at me, the idea of seeing you know, actually what the, the Dutch colours looked like. I could only sort of visualise it before. Um, so, so, so that would be very special. And um, what was the other part of the question, sorry? Sort of your most authentic football experience where you thought this this is the true essence of football, this is, this is the game, the spirit of the game. I would say that, what would I, who would I give my vote to on that one? I think my first time watching a game in Germany 
Uh, and this would take us to the, the mid 1980s when I was a student. When I was a student, and funnily enough, the crowd wasn't that big. First game was at uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, and if you look back now, I think probably only around 15,000 people inside the stadium. But I liked the way people were in in, in German uh, football venues. I liked the the way that they got behind their team. Uh, it was mostly standing back then. And then, of course, it's it's really taken off in recent years. And I will say now that if you do want the authentic football atmosphere, I think you've got to go to Germany. I think that you could argue that the Premier League standard is higher. You know, it undoubtedly is from top to bottom. But if you really want the, the fan experience, I will say go somewhere like Dortmund or Frankfurt or take your pick, really. So so that struck a chord with me as well. Yeah, Callum and myself are always talking about how we should go and um, and experience a bit of German football because it's something we haven't uh, done before. But yeah. Oh, uh, well, well you, you, you must do. And, and please, if you ever do, uh, feel free to pick my brain because I, I love giving people suggestions about where they might want to go and, and where the best best places are and in which order. So I really encourage you both to do that. I think you'd yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah, I will do. Um, so on a broader level, we spoke about the 1994 World Cup, but other than that, Talking about your favourite World Cup or or maybe European competition, international competition, you've obviously travelled all around the world. Um, what's the kind of your favourite international competition that you've ever witnessed and been part of? I think, to be honest with you, the one that was best from the point of view of broadcasting and sheer excitement was Euro 2008. Okay. Um, now, that was the one England missed out on, if you recall. That was the, the um, when Steve McLaren was the manager. But I just thought the games were so vibrant and they just came thick and fast. In the group stage, everything seemed to be really exciting. And the team that, that stood out for me in that competition was Turkey. I seemed to get them almost every match. And every match was a, uh, a game that saw them come from behind one miracle after another. And so I'm eternally grateful to Turkey for, for what they did in that uh, in that Euro. Uh, you know, they were very much my team, I felt, because because uh, I kept getting them and they kept giving me just amazing storylines. So, so that one, I think, um, I think, as I said, 74 earlier, the first one I can remember on TV, 90, the first one I went to as a commentator. So, you know, that wasn't a great World Cup, objectively, I have to say. It was a poor World Cup. But again, special to me just because I was there. 94, very special because I worked on it from the inside and, and got an entirely different perspective. And then the most recent one in Russia, you know, um, mm-hmm. that one, to be honest, stands up with anything else I've covered. I thought that was really a fabulous tournament and a great one to be at. And I think much better than Brazil 2014 and South Africa 2010, Germany 2006, I very much enjoyed. 02, I enjoyed. I was never in Japan, only in South Korea for that World Cup. And so got the, the Korean story on it. Um, so, yeah, the great thing is, you know, they all have their own high points. They all have their own themes. And so they carry on from the first game to the very last. And you sort of lose yourself in the ball as a commentator and then try to catch your breath. So they've all you know, been wonderful. And, you know, I, I just consider myself very lucky to have been able to broadcast most of them. And here's the sort of the Holy Trinity question, the one that football fans love to answer. Um, who is the greatest player? What is the greatest match? And what was the greatest goal that you've witnessed live? Okay. Um, Tough one, greatest, isn't it? Yeah, the greatest player, first of all. Um, ooh, where do we go with this? I think it's going to be hard for me not to say Maradona. Yeah. Now, again, I think these things come down to 
you know, generations and when you grew up and who you watched. And, you know, it would be very easy to say Messi. It would be easy to say Ronaldo for those who love Ronaldo. I mean, we're watching two special talents and they've been, you know, playing on our, our TV screens for, for goodness knows how many years now. But I just remember Maradona being very different, you know, when he came through. And then, you know, his crowning achievement, the, um, the World Cup win in 1986. So I, I think he's always going to take a bit of beating in, in my mind. And then the other one who actually stands out from that era, um, the late, great Johan Cruyff, uh, who didn't win a World Cup. But I think most people wanted to, to see win a World Cup. Didn't happen for him in 1974. So... Um, Again, I'm going to be sort of loyal to to my generation. I, I think that players are always magical um, when you're young, you know. And I think that's all. I mean, I, I'm still sort of starry-eyed when I meet somebody from from the 1970s, you know, who played for say Leeds United or Liverpool or, or Bayern, you know, some of the great teams from that era. I, I'm in awe. And, and you know, I, I've I remember the first time I met Gunter Netzer, you know, a great German player of the, the 1970s and met him at a social function and sat talking to him for 10 minutes. I had to sort of pinch myself and say, I'm talking, yeah. talking to the great Gunter Now, to somebody much younger, they would say, well, you know, who's that? I don't they really remember him. But, uh, you know, if they were to, to meet Stephen Gerrard on that basis, they might go, oh, my goodness, this is this is incredible. So, um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll give it to Maradona um, for the first one. Second one was the, the greatest game. Is that right? Game. You could yeah. almost incorporate Maradona into all three with the with the goal against <laughs> England when he ran the pitch and also the well, game itself. I'm I'm not going to go down that road because I'm, I'm oh. going to I'm going to go down the road of the game that I think will never be topped. And I was lucky enough to be there as a commentator. Um, 2005 in Istanbul, the UEFA Champions League final between Milan and Liverpool. And I was working in the states at the time for ESPN. We travelled all the way to. Istanbul to the Bosphorus and as we approached halftime it was 3-0 to Milan it was an absolute cakewalk for the Rossoneri and I was about to dig out my notes at halftime to to make sure I had the information as regards what the heaviest uh, defeat was by any side in a major European final because I thought that it was going to be that bad for Liverpool and then of course the comeback of all comebacks in a, in a major final and uh, from 3-0 down to 3-3 in short order, extra time, and then penalties, Jerzy Dudat, the goalkeeper, was the hero. And just to be able to chronicle that, especially from a place like Istanbul, that just made it all the more exotic to a U.S. audience, You know, many of whom had no idea where Istanbul even was probably at that time. Rare for Istanbul to ever be on, on U.S. TV. Um, you know, and that was just a great experience, and I was really happy with the way the commentary went. It was just one of those games that was a gift to a commentator. And, you know, to be there, to, to have done that and, and, you know, being able to to, to work in that environment, um, you know, that will take some beating. Yeah. I remember my father, he, he went to bed at 3-0 at half time. He turned it off and just decided <laughs> it was over. And he just thought, oh, well, whatever. Um, and being man United, yeah. he was probably sleeping quite happily until he realised <laughs> that Liverpool had actually done it. <laughs> Indeed. What was the third question again? Sorry. The third was the greatest goal. Greatest goal ever seen. Um, that one I always think is difficult to think about the greatest goal ever seen in person. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm just trying to think of one that absolutely stat because because nowadays, of course, we see so many goals on on television, but. Uh, you know, to actually see one in in person, 
uh, is always a very different experience. Uh, I mean, I can remember, you know, one of the one of my favorite ones, but again, I wasn't in person. I was working off tube on TV was Ronaldinho when he played for Barcelona and um, against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu. And I often think we under sort of underestimate Ronaldinho and, and how good he actually was as that Barcelona team of the the 2000s um, overtook Real Madrid and scored this classy, classy goal, um, which involved, uh, you know, beating a couple of players and then just firing it in as only he could do, leaving the goalkeeper who would have been Casillas, I think, uh, helpless and um, getting a standing ovation from the crowd at the Bernabeu in Madrid. I mean, that just doesn't happen. You know, Barcelona player um, at the the stadium of, of the arch enemies, and, you know, that one has always stayed with me as, as one of the greatest goals I've ever seen. Um, I'm sure there's another one that I can think of that's, that, that really, um, you know, jumps out from from. Um, I'll tell you one, actually, that does stand out. And it wasn't the it's not the greatest goal that's ever been seen. But there was a semi-final that I covered at Old Trafford. Um, and it, your dad probably would like this one. Uh, yeah. Manchester United against Barcelona. It was oh, yeah. a senior team. Yeah. And um, travelled over from the US for that one. And it had been a pretty tame nil-nil in the first leg. And um, Paul Scholes stepped yeah. up. And, you know, it, it was sort of just one kick of the right boot. But I just remember the roar at Old Trafford. It was like thunder. And... Um, that one has stayed with me for a long time. It was really powerful. And Manchester United, of course, you know, did make it to the final. Um, uh, and, and I'm trying to think if that was the one that they lost. Or if that was the one. Uh, that, that, was, they, that was 2008 and they got to the final. And they uh, won. And they beat, and they, and they beat Chelsea. Yeah, that yeah. was, was that one. Yeah, because the following year they went to the yeah. final as, as well against um, Barcelona and lost. So, yeah. So, yeah, this was Barcelona, obviously, in the semi-final, And they went on to... To, um, to to beat uh, Chelsea on penalties in the final. But that Scholes goal, you know, certainly one that's uh, very memorable. Oh, yeah, I remember him sort of, his reaction to the goal, sort of a disbelief. He kind of runs away and is is, is almost uncontrollable. But for a, for a guy that's quite understated, he was seemingly kind of uncontrollable by the emotion that he had. He unleashed that shot and it was bending away from um, Victor Valdez. And it was the goal yeah. that, that mattered. And, you know, Matt United kept out Messi for the rest of the game. It was one of those games that, you know, it means you're going to go on and win the tournament. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, and I think, you know, that reaction was all part of it. You know, the fact that Scholes was a sort of a shy retiring type, still is. And uh, just, you know, felt as though the, uh, you know, the roof of the, the stands at Old Trafford, that the roof, the roof was coming off and, uh, and everybody was going crazy. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I think we're going to tie it up there, Derek. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've got so many stories to tell, and you know we could go on for hours and hours. But um, uh, we'll um, we'll we'll end it there. Yeah, and, thanks very um, much, Derek. Yeah. It's been fascinating listening to your your insight, not only on sports broadcasting but as the uh, the game as a whole. So thank you very much for for speaking to us. It's been a pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine. You're both very kind to to have me on. So hopefully, it's been. Somewhat interesting to everybody listening. And that was Derek Ray there, so kind for giving up his time to join us on the Big Football Diving. What a lovely man he was and so insightful. As yeah, well. we could have been filming for hours and hours. It was great to hear all of his stories, um, so many experiences. Um, and he's, he's seen so much as a commentator and to be part of so many tournaments, many, so many great matches. He's also got interest in Bundesliga and in Eredivisie and Italian leagues. No, brilliant, brilliant guest. Must be so interesting for him as well to see the growth of the MLS from inside because, you know, we've all seen it grow from fledgling sport in America to now, you know, one of the biggest, biggest sports. There. Yeah, he's probably the best 
kind of positioned to, to give insight on that. So, so um, from our point of view, just listening to, to what you were saying, it's you learn so much, and um, and yeah, it was fantastic. Really, is fascinating to hear from from the voice behind the microphone. At so many big games uh, in football. We hope you found it uh, equally as interesting uh, at home listening. Thank you very much uh, for uh, indeed listening to to our podcast. We hope to do more uh, special guest interviews in the future. We're having a couple of conversations with some some other high profile names from the world of football as we speak. Um, so hopefully, we'll be back with a, another special. Uh, in not too distant future but from myself and Charlie as always thank you very much bye bye and we'll see you next time